Okay, guys, I'm going to try something new, which may cannibalize my whole business. So now, I'm going to cover the important things, investment companies and annuities. What's an investment company? The Investment Company Act of 1940 basically regulates all investment companies. What are investment companies? FUM, remember FUM, F-U-M, face amount certificates, unit investment trusts, and mutual funds. Some of these you can sell, some of these you can't. Like the closing funds, you can only sell the initial part, not when they're trading. ETFs, you can sell the initial part, but not when they're trading. So the Investment Company Act of 40 is covering face amount certificates, unit investment trusts, and management companies. Don't worry about the face amount. They are gone, but um, good to know that they're there. So now, UITs, they're basically a package. Good. Everything on this test is a package. It's like this. It's a little package, okay? And what you're doing is you're buying shares of this, not what's inside. But what's inside determines the value. So one of the things we have is a UIT. A UIT is a um, is basically a, it's a unit investment trust that is not a, if it's a fixed UIT it's not a security. Okay, so basically you, what they do is they fill this up with securities, usually bonds, and what happens is you buy shares of this. And as you and you're buying it for income, you get it monthly or semi-annual or yearly income out of this. And basically, it's holding bonds, okay? And you get the income from the bonds. Now, the thing is, it's not managed. It's it's like administered. There's a guy sitting there like this, just going, "Hey, oh, I'm just looking at the bonds. That's all he's looking at. He's not even replacing them. So if a bond gets called, and you should know what that is because of the SIE that it gets called back, or it defaults, or it matures." They don't replace it. So this thing gets smaller and smaller and smaller. It self-liquidates. As you, as you go along, the bonds disappear and it self-liquidates. When you buy into this, okay, you buy in a contract for a, a, a UIT, and what happens is you're getting paid. And it gets smaller and smaller and smaller as it goes away. I hope that helps a little bit. Now. And when you buy the UIT, it's redeemable. So you're going to buy it from the fund or the sponsor, from the sponsor or the UIT, and then you're going to sell it back to the UIT. It's called redeeming, and usually it's going to be de redeemed at NAV. And you're going to buy it with NAV plus a sales charge. And what it is is you're not really getting shares; you're getting units of beneficial interest, which is basically shares, but that's what they call them. Okay. So then we have face amount certificates, which are covered. I don't care. Just know that they're covered under the Act. They've been gone forever. Okay. Now, management companies, there's two types, open-end and closed-end. An open-end, you're buying it, you're buying into a fund. Again, it's a bunch of securities inside this shell. Okay? Now, since I'm riffing and I don't have a script, this could be painful. But we're going to make it as least painful as possible. By the way, if you've gotten this far, please subscribe and like and share. I'm so egocentric and ego full of myself. So now, you're buying this bottle, okay? This bottle, in a sense, is worth nothing. But if I filled it with securities, what's going to happen is you're going to buy the value of this bottle goes up and down based on the securities inside. So my example is, say I have 20,000 shares of IBM in this bottle. And there's 20,000 shares of this bottle. Again, let's do it again. I buy... This fund buys 20,000 shares of IBM, $20,000 worth of IBM, and puts it in the, in the shell. 
Now, you, they issue 20,000 shares. So if this is worth 20 grand and the shares are off 20,000, each share is $1. That's the NAV. I'm taking the value divided by the number of shares. So if you're going to buy it, that's what you would buy it at. Okay. But what's interesting is it's called that if it's an open end or a mutual fund, if you buy shares at a dollar, they're going to issue more shares to you. So if you were to buy, remember, this is 20 grand, 20,000 shares. If you were to buy $1,000 worth, you'd buy 1,000 shares. So now they would issue another 1,000 to you. So now there's 21,000 shares outstanding. And they would take your money and buy another $1,000 worth of IBM. So this is worth 21 grand. And there's 21,000 shares. Boom, it's still a dollar. It's not always a dollar. I'm just saying it hasn't changed. You buying and selling shares has no impact on the NAV. And remember, you're buying it from the fund or the sponsor at NAV. And then what they do is they add a sales charge to pay their sales reps. The max sales charge is 8.5%. So they're going to buy, you're going to buy at NAV plus a sales charge of 8.5%. So you may you buy, maybe you buy it for 10 bucks plus 8.5%. Maybe you're buying it at like 10.92. And that's your POP. So it's NAV plus a sales charge equals public offering price. Okay? So an open end fund, again, it's called open because they're constantly issuing new shares and deleting them. So when you, another point is when you buy them, you buy them, say you buy it at 10 in the morning, I buy it at 2 in the afternoon, we're both getting the same price because it's forward pricing. They price it at the end of the day, and we find out what shares we get after 4 o'clock, after they price it, okay? That's an open end in general. We're going to go into heavier, but that's a start. Now, a closed end is similar but what happens is they issue the set number of shares. So here, we have $20,000 of IBM. We issue 20,000 shares. And that's it. We don't sell anymore. That's it. We issue one thing. That's why it's closed. It's not adding more shares. If you want shares, you have to find one of these persons who owns it to sell it to you. And it's going to be based on market price, whatever they decide they want to sell it at. It could be at $1, $10, $20, whatever it is. The NAV is still going to be the amount of shares, the amount of assets divided by the number of shares. But in the closing, you buy it above or below. It's either above or below based on market price. And when you buy it, you're going to buy it with a commission that you're going to pay. You're going to pay a commission to the, um, the broker-dealer who's selling it to you. So again, open-end, constantly issuing shares nonstop, a continuous offering. Closed-end, one time we issue it. But the caveat here is that they can actually issue common, preferred, or bonds. You're just buying shares of a company that manages. Okay, let's move on a little bit. Okay, so a mutual fund is an open end. They, they have the portfolio, and they manage it, and you're buying it at NAV, and the NAV is determined by the assets and the shares. So if you have 20,000 shares, and this is worth 20 grand, NAV is a dollar. That's where you buy it, plus a sales charge. If the assets go to 40, and there's still 20,000 shares, it's now $2.00 plus a sales charge and again at the end of the day so again the only thing that really drives the NAV up and down is if the assets in the fund go up and down or if you remember from the SIE if they pay a dividend if you pay a dividend it drops the price by the amount of the dividend because they have to take it out okay so again a mutual fund is that now let's go a little deeper a mutual fund has a manager who lives in a really ritzy part of town making a lot of money what he does is he buys and sells the securities in here to add what he calls alpha. Okay, so they're trying to add alpha, which is like 
his version of doing his job. So if the markets, if the market that represents this portfolio is up 10%, well, this fund should go up at least 10% because it's invested in that sector. The manager is trying to do 11 or 12 or 13. He's trying to do better. So he's actively managing the fund. Okay. So he's actively managing this fund, buying and selling securities to try to do better than this than this. Does that make sense? I hope so. Anybody have a comment? Oh, it's not live, so you can't comment. Okay. So basically, you're buying shares of this fund, and the manager is actively trading the shares, the, the assets inside the fund. Okay? Okay. So that's an open end. That's a close end. Both open and close are actively managed, which means the manager is actively trading the shares in the shares inside the fund, the assets they're buying. They're trying to do better than the market. There's another type that you guys can't sell right now, but it's called an ETF, and it's exchange-traded fund. It is not actively managed. They issue a set number of shares, like a close-end, but it's not actively managed. They buy like it on an index, or a uh, they buy all the shares in an index, or like all gaming stocks, or e-gaming, or something like that, and they don't, man they don't actively manage it. What they do is they rebalance. They're going to rebalance it every quarter. So let's say my fund is 25% EA, 25% Nintendo, 25% Apple, and 25% whatever Fortnite does. And say Fortnite, everyone's playing it, it goes up a lot more than the others. Well, its balance is going to be skewed, so at the end of the quarter, they will rebalance it by selling some of the Fortnite, whatever they do, and buying the other ones to bring it back to the 25% each. That's called rebalance, and that's passive management. That's ETFs. I don't think we're going to go heavy into that, but again, ETFs are passively managed. They have um, they have a set number of shares, and you buy them at a market price, plus or minus a commission. You pay a commission to the broker-dealer. So again, ETFs, passively managed, issue a set number of shares, and it trades on the market. It's usually going to be close to its NAV, but it's not tied to it. They also have inverse, which means it goes opposite of the market. And they also have leverage, which means if the market goes up 10, it'll go up 20 or 30%. So they have 2x, which is 2 times or 200%, which means if the, whatever the market does that it's following, it does twice as much. If it's a 3x or 300%, it's going to go three times as much. I hope that helped a little bit. Okay. So now, again, face amount certificates, unit investment trusts, open end and, and open end. Okay, and open end. They are going to, you're going to, they're all covered under the Investment Company Act of 40. Okay. Now, why do I buy a mutual fund? So I'm buying it for a few reasons. One, instant diversification. So I'm getting rid of non-systemic risk. So if you buy a mutual fund, you're buying shares of like, you know, buying this fund, which has like 400 different companies in there. So you're getting diversification, getting rid of non-systemic risk. So you kind of, it's not safer. Everyone says it's safer. It's not safer. You just get rid of non-systemic risk so that even if one of the companies does bad, the other ones are going to do fine. Okay. You buy for professional management, which I think is overweight, over, overrated, overweighted, overrated. I think it's overrated because maybe you're paying a lot of fees. That's another problem with the mutual fund. There's a lot of fees. There's management fees and 12B1 fees. We'll add to all these things are, um, you're paying for. It's coming out of your return. That's if he does better, it drops down what they're going to earn. So you're buying it for diversification, professional management, 
and divert and um, liquidity, easy in, easy out. You can get in very easy. You want in, you want out, you're done. But remember, you can't really trade these things, so buying in and out of them on a daily or even a monthly basis probably is not a good idea. They're long-term investments because you're going to pay fees on the way in. Um, that was of a sales charge. Okay. Um, now, if I buy a mutual fund and they want to charge 8.5% sales charge, they have to offer four things. One of them is a breakpoint schedule, which all it means, the breakpoint schedule is somewhat easy, is that the more you invest in the fund, the lower the sales charge. Remember, the sales charge max was 8.5%. Well, this is going to be, if I put in more, if I invest 10 or 20 or 30, there's a schedule that I say, oh, if you invest 10, you pay 8.5. If you invest 20, you pay 7. If you pay 50, you'll pay like 3. I'm making the numbers up. It's just the more you invest in my fund, the lower the sales charge is going to be. And that's why, which we'll get to, hopefully I won't forget, dollar cost averaging is where you put the same amount of money in every month. That will build toward your breakpoint. So the best way to invest in a mutual fund is to do dollar cost averaging where you're putting the same amount of money in every month. And that's going to build up towards your breakpoint so you'll get lower sales charges. Also, dollar cost averaging lowers your average cost because you're buying, since you're putting the same amount of money, if the shares are lower, you buy more. If the shares are higher, you're buying less. Still the same amount of money, but you're buying less at the higher price and more at the lower price. Same money though, okay? Um, one is breakpoint sales. Another one is um, breakpoint schedule. Breakpoint sales is when the rep, your evil, evil rep, tries to put you in just below the breakpoint. Say your breakpoint's 10, he puts you in at 9 and says, oh, just put in 9 grand, don't worry about it. That's a problem because if he, he's supposed to tell you, put another $1,000 in and you get a lower sales charge. That's less money to him, but it's better for you. Second, letter of intent. A letter of intent, a letter of intent is I intend to, I'm going to put in 10 grand now, but oh, my grandma, knock on wood, my grandma is really sick. So I think she's going to die in a couple months and leave me some money. So I'm going to, I know I'm horrible, but you're going to get, you know you're going to get money in the future, so you say, listen to the mutual fund. I'm going to put in 10 grand now, but I think I'm going to get 50 in the future, in the next 13 months. That's how long they last, 13 months. So I want to go, um, can you give me the sales charge based on me putting the 10 and the other 50 that I'm getting in three, four months? And they go, yes, that's a letter of intent. So the letter of intent is good for 13 months forward. And oh, how about this? You can actually backdate it, so meaning that if you go, oh, I have money now. Oh, gosh, I put money in two months ago. Can I put that money toward my breakpoint? Sure, they'll just backdate it a couple months. But again, the length is 13. So if you're 13 this way and you backdate, boom, that only goes out 10 months. So it's a 13-month max life. That's a letter of intent. That's the second thing you have to offer, okay? That's the second thing you have to offer for, if you're going to charge 8.5%. The third thing is rights of accumulation which goes with the dollar cost averaging, meaning that as you put money in, it grows, and then as you hit break points, all your new money that you put in gets the lower sales charge. The other part of that is, if you put in five grand, and the value of the assets, I always screw this up, the value of the assets go up past a break point, all your new investments get that break point. So again, I put in money now, and it grows past a break point, any new money I get gets that break point. We good? Fourth, dividends reinvested at NAV. That means if you choose to automatically re reinvest the dividends, they will put them in with no sales charge.
Now, that's a good thing. So you get no sales charge. You w- it will be taxable. Anything you get from a mutual fund, you pay tax, whether it's a dividend and ordinary income or their capital gains distribution, which is once a year, you're going to pay um, capital gains rate on that. But everything they distribute is taxable. Okay? that's you, There's no way around that. So they're not really tax efficient. But again, breakpoint schedule, letter of intent, rights of accumulation, and dividends reinvested at the NAV. That's if you choose to automatically do it. But again, it's taxable. No sales charge, but it's taxable. On that note, since I want to bring it in, if you, with the breakpoints, if you invest in different in the same use of family films, like Fidelity is one, Vanguard is one, T Row is one, all their funds are under one family. If you invest in all different funds inside that family, well, then you get the breakpoint because they'll aggregate it. Even if a husband and wife do it, and they're at different broker-dealers, TD and Schwab, if you invest in Fidelity, Fidelity gives you the breakpoint, not Schwab or TD. So, again, breakpoints are done on the mutual fund level, and even if a husband and wife put in, and they will aggregate the two together to see if you hit a breakpoint or not. If you move from one fund to another inside a mutual fund family, it's not, it's not, there's no breakpoint, but it is taxable because you're buying, you're selling the one fund at hopefully a pro- profit, and then you're buying another one. So you're going to have a proceeds and a cost basis. So it is taxable when you sell as a capital gain. I hope that helps a little bit. Okay. So now, again, we talked about it's forward pricing. You buy the shares at noon or I buy it at 2 p.m. We both get the same price at 4 p.m. Okay. So we don't know what we're getting when we do it. Now, I mentioned before, that there's a thing called the diversif- you're buying it for diversification. There's actually a thing called a diversified fund. It's a level. And it's called the 75-5-10 list. Okay, 75-5-10. So at least 75% of the assets have to be invested. You can't, you can't put more than 5% of the fund's assets in any one security. And those that 5% of the fund's assets cannot be more than 10% of any company's voting stock. Because that would make you a control person. So again, I have a $100 million fund. I have to invest at least 75%. Now, 5% of the 100, so that's 5 million, cannot be in any one security. That's the 5% not invested more than 5% of assets in any one security. And then I, the 10% means that of the money I invest can't equal more than 10% of the voting stock of that company. Okay. Now, a couple things real quick. If I'm going to register in a mutual fund under the Act of 40, it has to be at least $100,000. You have to have at least 100 shareholders, okay? And if you want to change the principle, or cha- not the principle, change the feature, what you want to do, whether it's large cap, mid cap, you have to get voting of the shareholders, probably not even a testimony. Right. Okay. Now, um, let's see what else we got. Okay. So now, again, when I buy the shares, I buy them right from the mutual fund. Or a sponsor, like a Schwab or a TD, if they sign a contract with the mutual fund, they can sell it. So I'm going to pay NAV, which is that value of the fund. I'm going to add a sales charge. And what's the max sales charge? Oh, 8.5%. Good, guys. And that's going to equal the POP. NAV plus sales charge equals POP. I buy at the POP, and I'm going to sell it or redeem it at the NAV. That's where I do. I sell it at the NAV, which is no sales charge. Okay? Now... Um, I've never seen them ask how to calculate the NAV, but they could ask how to do the POP. So let's make sure we got this. So we have, if you have an NAV of $10 and a sales charge of $0.80, cents, the POP is 1080 That's easy. If they say you have 
a $10 sales NAV and a, and a 1050 POP, the difference is 50 cents. So that's a 50 cent sales charge. Now they may want to know the percentage. You're going to do the percentage from the POP, not from the NAV. Okay? So you're going to do, I'm handy dandy calculator. I use a Samsung. I'm like an old man. I'm going to do 50 cents, 0.50 divided by $10.50. That's 4.7%. I'm well below the 8.5% problem. Okay? So that's where that is. Now, they may ask you this. I doubt it, but I've seen people do this. If they say you have a $10 NAV and you have an 8.5% sales charge, an 8% sales charge, you can't, you can't just say, oh, it's 8% of 10. The sales charge is a percentage of the POP. So you have to do 10 divided by, oh, how do I do this? 100 minus the sales charge. So that's going to be 100 minus the 8% sales charge. That works 92%, which is 0.92. So my new, so I'm going to do 10 divided by 0.92. That gives me $10.86 as my POP. So again, I'm going to do the NAV divided by 100 minus the sales charge, decimalize it, and then divide. That gives me the POP. That's if they give you the NAV and a percentage. If they give you an amount, you just go, if they say it's an 80 cent sales charge, you just go, oh, 10 plus 80 is 1080. Okay, I hope I helped and I hope I didn't make anything worse. If you don't like what I'm doing and you need more clarification, throw shit in the comments, okay? Now, max sales charge is a is 8.5%. Now, the other thing they do is there's a thing called an expense ratio. Expense ratio is what it costs to run the funds. And guess what? We all as shareholders share that. So the more shareholders we have, the less we pay. It's kind of like when you buy a summer house or rent a summer house for the summer. If it's the two of you, it's going to cost you 10 grand each. But if you bring a bunch of disgusting men and women down and pile in, maybe you have like 20 people in there, it's going to cost you 1000 You're splitting it between more people. So the expense ratio is sort of a fixed cost of running. It's not exactly fixed, but it's sort of fixed. And what we're going to do is we're going to try to bring in as many investors as we want to lower that expense ratio per person. Now, the mutual fund goes, well, we believe that helps you more than us. So we're going to charge you for doing that. So the only way to bring in new investors is to bring in a, um, is to have a, uh, to, to market and advertise it, and that's not free. So what they do is they go, okay, well, we're going to market and advertise it, but we're going to charge you. That's called the 12B1 fee. The 12B1 fee is an annual fee to pay for marketing and advertising. Yes, it sucks, but it actually does help you because you're paying, you know, say it's three quarters of a percent or one percent of your assets every year, but maybe it's dropping the expense ratio by more than that because you're spreading it among more people. So again, the marketing and advertising 12B1 fee is to help market the fund, bring in more investors so you can share the expense ratio. I'm not so sure it works so well, but it's a good story. Okay, now, there are three classes of funds. There's class A, class B, class C. That's the main three, okay? It's the same fund. It's the same fund. It's getting into the same. I'm buying a large cap fund. I can go in A, B, or C. Class A, like front of the line, letter A, is front end load. That means you're paying the sales charge or sales load, same thing, up front, max, say it's 7.5% now because we might add a 12B1 fee in there. But this, you're going to pay the sales charge up front and probably no 12B1 fee or very tiny because they got their money from you. So, and the other thing is the class of front end load has, you can pay sales charge as you enter. So you get break points, which the more you put in, the lower it is. 
and it's better for um, long term because you pay up front and over time that'll pay for itself. Really, class A is best for a lot of money long term. Class B, B for back end. They also call it a contingent deferred sales charge, CDSC, okay? Contingent deferred sales charge. A contingent deferred sales charge is you pay on the way out, okay? By the way, when you're done with this, if you made it this far, we'll get through. I'm hoping to be done in less than an hour. You'll be not along with reading. You should be good for the test, the series six. Okay. Again, please subscribe and share. If you made it this far, you might as well go. So now, a sales charge. Where was I? Class B. You pay the sales charge as you leave. Okay. You pay the sales charge as you leave. So what you're going to do is you're going to buy into the fund, pay no sales charge. When you leave, they charge you. But what they do is. Every year that you stay, they lower it. So maybe it's eight, then five, then three, then one, then nothing. Usually after five years, they waive the whole thing. So the whole point is they want you to stay. You're going to pay a sales charge when you leave. But as you get low, the longer you stay, the less you pay. There's no break point. There's no way to make it work. But you will pay a 12B1 fee, maybe half a percent. So it is building every year. You're paying a 12B1 fee. But the, the, the things go down. The sales charges go down. The reason it's not better than the Class A over long term is because that 12V1 fee starts to build, and it's a percentage. So if you put in 10 grand, it's 50 bucks. Say it's half a percent, it's 50 bucks a year. But after 10 years, you're now at 20 grand, maybe hopefully. It's now 100 bucks a year, and then 200, and then 400. It doesn't end. Class C is like the worst ever. So basically, you're paying no sales charge, or maybe a level, like maybe 1 percent, but you're paying the max 12V1 fee every year. Most of my students who sell Class C. If they do, they have to get permission from their principal every time. The other two, just do as you think it fits. Class C, basically the people have to sign a waiver saying, yeah, I know you're screwing me over. Okay? So that's Class A, B, C. There's also a thing called a no-load fund. A no-load fund has no sales charge, but also has to have a 12B1 fee less than 0.25% or 25 basis points, whatever they want to call it. Okay? That's a no-load fund. Okay, so now, when you buy into a mutual fund, you are buying and they're creating shares for you. Remember I said you bought it and they create shares for you. So it's like a little IPO. An IPO every day. An IPO for you. When you get an IPO, what do you have to get? A prospectus. You have to get a prospectus every time you buy shares because they're issuing new shares to you. And that's the Act of 33 saying that we have to get a prospectus. Okay. So here's the thing. In the prospectus, I'm going to give you the, ma the, the, ma the my major stuff. One, you got to give the objectives. Is it large cap, small cap, whatever. It, you're going to have to tell you what the sales charges is, if there's break points. The management expenses, remember, you're paying for that guy who's managing it. Anything they do, the services, and they have to show the performance dates for the past one, five, and ten years. If the fund is less than ten years, they have to do one, five, in the life of the fund. But once it's over ten years, they're going to go back ten. Also, you have to say somewhere, past performance does not indicate future. You have to make sure that's clear. Okay. Um, the rest of the prospectus, just know that you have to get it basically by completion of the trade. Okay. I'm not worried about the prospectus on this test other than that basically an update it every 12 months. Okay. Okay. Um, what can, well, different mutual funds up, there's equity funds, bond funds. So an equity fund means that it's buying a bunch of equities. So you're getting all the same capital appreciation, income, and inflation protection of buying equities or common stocks. But you're diversified, so it's a little better. There's still systemic risk, but not non-systemic. A bond fund. You're buying like, it's buying bonds. You're buying it for income. 
Okay, that's what you're doing. Like an income fund is basically buying bonds or preferreds, but a bond fund buys bonds. A muni bond fund also gets the advantage of that the interest that you get paid is tax-free. A sector fund is based on a specific sector. Like a majority of it would be like, you know, in the tax or biotech or food or whatever sector you want to do. It's going to, but there's more non-systemic risk because it's more on to one sector. An index fund just tracks an index. Usually it's pretty much a passively managed where they just try to match, match the fund. Okay. They just try to match the index. Okay. Now money market funds, basically they're always, by the way, Money market funds are for short-term parking your money. It is strictly just for um, parking your money short-term, not long-term. But the NAV is always a dollar. And, and the whole reason, they don't charge a sales charge. You just dump your money in there when you want to park it. You can do money markets or you can do money market fund. Really the same thing. Okay. Um, we've already done the NAV sales charge. I think we did that. Okay. Now, um, what's the only thing that moves the NAV? Because, you know, buying and selling doesn't. So the only thing that moves the NAV is the assets going up and down or if they pay out a dividend. What decreases, so increases is the value going up, decreasing is the value going down, or they pay a dividend. Buying, buying into the fund or redeeming does not affect it. Um, basically, the, basically, the fund buying and selling securities inside doesn't affect it either. Because they're, they have cash, they buy it, they have less cash, they have more shares. It doesn't affect it. And sales charges are outside. Sales charges are not part of expense ratios, but 12B1 fees are. Okay. We got the no-load fund. Um, okay. Again, dollar cost averaging is investing the same amount of money every time period. Okay. So you do the same amount of time, same amount of money every time period. So we're going to put in $1,000 every month. So if the shares are 50, we're going to buy 20 shares. If the shares are 20, we're going to buy 50. If the shares are 100, you're going to buy 10. If the shares are 200, we're going to buy 5. So the point is you're putting the same amount of money every time, but based on the share price, it's going to, you're going to get different share amounts every time. It's the best way to invest in the market. I highly doubt they're going to make you do the math on that, okay? Okay, so we have the break. I think that's mostly mutual funds. Okay. Um... If somebody buys into a mutual fund and within seven days they get out of it, usually they'll waive the sales charges because it means you put them in an unsuitable, and you can get in trouble because you put them in an unsuitable thing. The other thing is, before I move on to annuities and stuff like that, um, do not, switching is moving them from into one fund to another quickly. It's like a version of churning. Like really, anyone invests in a mutual fund and moves out of it within a couple months and does it often, it's trading mutual funds. It's not that it's not allowed. It's just, it's stupid because the fees are high and it's stupid. And it's, and since it's a long-term thing, it could be considered churning. Okay. Now, um, everything about a mutual fund is taxable. If they pay you dividends, which they do quarterly, that's, that's going to be taxed at ordinary income because that's what it is. It's the short-term gains and their interest in dividends. Capital gains distribution will be done once a year. Once a year, they do capital gains distribution, okay? That is going to be taxed at, at long-term capital gains, long-term capital gains. And even if you buy the fund, boom, today, and a week later, they kick out the long-term capital gain to you, it's a long-term gain to you because it's not about you. It's about the fund. Normally, long-term is over a year. This time, if they do a capital gains distribution, it's a long-term to you. Now, one last thing. I think I'm used to funds unless I have a 
uh, an epiphany, come up with more. Um, Subchapter M of the code allows that if a mutual fund distributes 90% of its net income, net income, so they're paying their salaries or rent and everything, if they pay 90% of their net income, that money comes to the investor without being touched on tax. They only pay tax on the 10%. The fund only pays tax on what they don't pay. And then you get the money tax pre-tax, then you, the investor pays tax on it. It sounds like it doesn't help you at all, but it does. Because what happens is, in a normal corporation, they pay tax on the money, and then they send it to you, and you pay tax. Here, they get the money, they pay their bills, then they send you the money, it's never been taxed, so you actually get more money. So Subchapter M allows that if a mutual fund, or even a REIT, distributes at least 90% of their income, they don't pay taxes, they don't pay taxes, and you do, okay? Now... When you get out of a fund, you can do a systemic withdrawal. You can even annuitize it if you want, which we'll talk about later. Um, you can you can sell the fund shares based on FIFO, LIFO, average cost, depending on how you want to do it. If you don't mention a method, it's FIFO. Just remember the it The IRS screws you. If you don't mention a method, if you're selling your shares, you have to figure out what your taxes are. It's going to be what you bought it for and what you sold it for. The difference is what you're taxed on. So if you choose, if you don't mention a method, they're going to do FIFO, which means the first shares you bought are the first shares you sell. So you might have a bigger caught, bigger capital gain that you pay taxes on. You can choose average, average all my prices, or you can do LIFO, where you say the last shares I bought are what I want to sold. Sometimes that works out to be different, better for you, because if it's cost basis versus proceeds, you want the least amount with the long-term status. Because the less that difference between cost basis and proceeds are, the less you pay taxes on. Okay. Um, I think we're good with customer accounts. You should know customer accounts because you have the SIE. Okay. I am going to stop this. I'm not going to stop this. I am not going to stop it. I'm just going to go run forever. But here is like a little segue where that's mutual funds. And now I'm going to work on annuities a little bit. Okay. So let's talk about annuities. Annuities are annuities are insurance products and they're a retirement account. They're usually like your last resort, but they are a retirement account, okay? So you usually do this after you've capped off your IRA, your 401k, you've hidden your money in your secret Swiss bank account, everything first, then we do this, okay? So this is what they call a non-qualified account. A non-qualified account means that it goes in after taxes, which means the money goes in, you've already paid taxes on it. So again, the good thing is there's no limit. You can put a million dollars in this or 50 grand or 100 grand, whatever you want, you can put in because the IRS has already taken their bite. So what happens is whether it's qualified or not qualified, it's deferred. Okay, that means the income that you're growing is going to defer. You're not going to pay taxes on it until you take it out. So I'm going to talk about annuities in general, not fixed versus variable yet. Okay, so an annuity is you put money in pre after tax. It grows tax deferred because it's invested in something. If it's a fixed, it grows at a set rate, so it's variable, it's in sub-accounts, and it's invested in the market, so you go up and down, and, but it should beat inflation. So now, let's say 20 years from now, you want to take the money out, you have three choices. You can withdraw the money straight up, just withdraw it, take it out, then you'll pay tax on the growth. So let's, in our example, every time, it's I, I put in 20 grand, and it grows to 100. That's what I'm going to do every time. I put in 20 grand, grows to 100, I take it out. I'm going to pay ordinary income because it's a retirement. All retirement's ordinary income. I'm going to pay ordinary income on the 80 grand, the amount above the cost basis of 20. If it's a qualified annuity, I pay tax on the whole 100. 
because the money goes in pre-tax. They would have to absolutely say that to you. Okay. Now, <clears throat> if I have a, um, so let's the next step is, it's going to be, um, let's say I decide to annuitize. I'm gonna, I can do that at any age. I can be 22 years old and annuitize. I can be 30. I can be 80. It doesn't matter. Annuitize means that I'm going to get paid if you do straight life, paid till I die. Because what you're doing is you're really taking your 100 grand and giving it to the insurance company. They do their little voodoo magic and they go, oh, you're going to die in a certain amount of years or whatever it is, and they have to pay you based on that. So let's talk about the different choices. So the first choice is life only, straight life. That means I put in the money. I have a hundred grand. I um I want to annuitize, so I'm sixty years old, and they go look at me, and I'm a fat piece of crap, and they go, you're gonna die in ten years, so they have to pay the ten, and I do straight life. That means I get paid till I die. So what happens is they're gonna say, okay, you have a hundred grand plus or minus the interest, whatever it is, and you're gonna die in ten years. So they have to pay you at a rate that the entire hundred grand would be paid to you by the time you're supposed to die. So that's ten grand. That's ten grand a year. Every year they're gonna pay me ten grand. What if I die after one year? What? Oh, they keep the money. I get screwed. Well, I don't really care because I'm dead. But I lose I lose all that 90 grand because I die after one year. They made one $10,000 payment and boom, I die. Okay. If I live for three years, I get paid three times and then they keep the rest. But what happens if I live for 15, 20, 30 years? They have to keep paying me at the same rate. That ten grand a year. So really, if I outlive my experience, my life expectancy, I'm getting more back than I put in. That's why we buy it. In theory, these sounds awesome. They're not so great, but in theory, they sound awesome. Okay. So variable annuity. If you do straight life, you put money in, it grows tax deferred, and then you get paid until you die. If you die after one year, they're done. If you die after thirty years, they have to keep paying you, so you can't outlive your money. That's straight life. Talk about the payments in a second. The other one is joint life survivor. Maybe me and my lovely honey. Okay? Um, basically, what they're going to do is they're going to look at both of us and say, okay, well, you're a fat old man. She's young and beautiful. She's going to live longer than you. So we're going to base it on her life expectancy. So instead of being 10 years, it might be 15 or 20. So you're going to take that same 100 grand and say it's over 20 years. 100 grand divided by 20 years, 5 grand a year. If we both die after a week, they keep the whole money. If they, if we keep living, they keep paying until both of us are dead. That's joint last survivor. So it's going to lower the payment because there's more risk to the insurance company. Then there's life with period certain. That is a life annuity. They pay me till I die, but there's a certain number of years that they're guaranteed to pay, like the first five or ten years, whatever I'm willing to pay. The longer my period certain, the less my payment's going to be because they're at risk. Because remember, if I do a five-year period certain and die after one year, they have to pay for five years regardless. If I live for seven years, they pay till I die, and then that's it. So again, it's a life with period certain. So it's life annuity, and they pay until I die. But if I die under the certain amount of period, then they will pay it. I usually do that if I like a kid or somebody like that, and I want to make sure I get some money in case I croak. Okay? The other one is what they call a unit refund annuity, I think it's called, where what happens is even if you die early, they guarantee to pay back what you put in. Okay? So let's make sure we got this. Put 20 grand in, it grows to 100. I annuitize, I can never change. Once I annuitize, I can't change my mind on the payout. Other things I can change, but not the payout. I choose life, I, I get paid till I die. Highest payout choice, always. Life appeared certain, I'm paid until me and my lovely wife die. Or lovely husband, whatever you want to do. 
third is life with period certain you're guaranteed a certain number of years and then it becomes a life annuity now let's go back to something so if i annuitize i said i can't change my mind so if i die and do the life annuity my family gets nothing okay but why do you care you're dead screw them kidding um now if you die before you annuitize if you die before you annuitize your family gets the money they get what you put in so you put in 20 grows to 100 they'll get the 100. if if you put in 20 went to negative two just say they still get 20. so they get the greater of the growth it, the what the total value is or what you put in now what's interesting though is if you remember from hopefully from the SAE there's a thing called the tax basis that if you die they step up meaning that if you buy in normal things if you buy stock at 20 20 bucks and then it's at 50 when I die your family gets it at 50 so they pay less taxes they only pay tax above the 50 when they sell it annuities don't step up so if I buy it if I put in 20 grand and it's now 80 and I kick it my family gets the 80 but they pay taxes when they sell it on everything from the 20 up so there's no step up of cost basis, which sucks, but it is what it is. I'm dead. I don't care. It's your problem. Now, if I do a fixed annuity, basically what I said doesn't change. I put in money. It grows at a set rate. They set my number, and that number never changes. The problem with that is I have inflation risk. Inflation risk is a purchase of our risk, if you know from my previous ones, is the fact that goods go up, but I'm still getting the same amount of money. So over time, it's not good. So really, a fixed annuity is better for an older or an elderly person. After everything else is done, an elderly person, okay? So it's better for someone in their 60s or maybe 70s because inflation isn't that big a deal because, let's face it, if you're in your 70s, you have a foot in death's door. I'm totally kidding if one of you guys are 70, but your life expectancy is shorter than someone who's in their 50s. Now, a variable annuity is a little more fun. So what you're going to do is a variable annuity and invest in the market. It's called the, they invest in sub-accounts or separate accounts. If you see a sub-account or separate account, that means it's a variable. By the way, as far as selling this shit, if you sell a fixed annuity, it's not a security, so you can sell it without this Series 6. If you want to sell a variable annuity or a mutual fund, you need a Series 6 or a 7 plus the SIE. And if you sell the variable annuity, you also need your insurance license. So fixed annuity insurance license only. Variable annuity, you need the insurance and the uh, series six. I know I ramble and rant, but I'm just trying to riff on this crap. Okay, I don't even know what riff means, but it sounds like me just going off the handle. Variable annuity. I invest in a sub account or separate account. I choose my risk. I go, oh, I want to do more equities or bonds or whatever it is. It's investing in mutual funds. Okay, based on how I want my risk tolerance, I can set it. Based on the insurance company, they have more flexibility or others. So you put money in and it grows. It could grow up 10% one year, down three, up four, up 10, up 20, all over whatever the market is. You're going to have market risk, right? You have market risk when you invest in the market, but you don't have inflation risk because the market should outpace over your 20, 30 years, outpace the market. So boom, fixed annuity grows at a set rate. Variable annuity grows at a variable rate based on the market. Now, boom, we annuitize. We're annuitizing. I'm 60 years old. I don't have to be, but I want to be. I'm 60 years old. They go, okay. Here's your hundred grand. We assumed, and there's a thing called air, assumed interest rate. Assumed interest rate is is what they think they could get. It's a conservative return. Okay? It's a conservative return. Now, say air is five percent. They just make it up, it's hot high, but it's just say it is. That means if your portfolio beats that number, your payment goes up from the last month. 
if it doesn't beat that number, it goes below, it's going to drop from last month. So if it if it's the same as air, it's going to match. Your monthly number doesn't change. So here's the thing. So it resets. So let's say I have an air of 5%. That's a, just a guess. There's no guarantee. It's just it's not a guarantee at all. It's just what the insurance company puts as your benchmark. So if you have $1,000, say you're, they come up with your number is 1000 a month, just say. And you and air is 5%. If you do 6%, your payment goes up to, like, say, 1200 I'm making numbers up. So it goes up to twelve. That's your new base. So then the next month, if you do 5%, you stay at 12 If you do more than 5%, it goes up. If you do less than 5%, it goes down from that new 1200 So if you do 5.1% every month, it goes like 1010 1020 1030 But everyone gets confused on this. Say the first month you do 6%. Your payment goes to 12 If the next month you do 5.1%, it still goes up because you're above air. Remember, it's a benchmark. If you do more than air, your payment goes up. If you do less than air, your payment goes down from the last month. We good? I love it. Okay. So now, again, same thing. It's highest pain. Life is, uh, do you have life, straight life, joint life survivor, and um, life impaired certain plus others, but that's where the test is going to be. But again, the variable annuity is more for the younger set, like the 40s and 50s, and um, the fixed annuities for older, okay? Because the lower ones, ha the younger people have more inflation risk because they're going to have a longer time horizon where the older they are they have less time horizon less what do you call it less i'm getting punch drunk less time so they have less purchase and power risk so that's annuities in general now a couple things here's the problem annuities sound awesome i think they sound great but their insurance companies never lose money so they charge fees they charge a mortality risk that's they charge a mortality risk fee that means that they're you're paying for the fact that you just won't freaking die. That if you keep out living it, they have to keep paying, okay? Which is great in a sense, but that's you're paying for that. You also have expense risk because when you set it up, certain portion of your payments cover the expenses. The expense risk, the expense protection is saying that if their expenses go up, that's not your problem, that's theirs. But they charge you a fee for that. Again, their fees are just killing you. There's insurance companies charge fees out the butt. So that's why these annuities are like the last choice. If you have everything capped off, 401k, all that stuff, you're capped off. Okay, now, there's another type. Do I want to go on to this yet? Oh, so now, remember, I said it's non-qualified. So you put the money in after tax or gross tax deferred. You're going to pay tax on the 80, right, because 20 to 100. On the, pay, on the annuities, you can't really know where the 20 and the 80 is. Because if you withdraw the money, they're going to do it LIFO, where they take out the growth. And then your principal, what you put in, comes out last. But on on this, since part of your growth, part is growth, part is principal, your payment will be partially taxable, partially not. So in this case, if you're a thousand a month, I'm making up numbers. You'll pay taxes on 800 of it, and no taxes on 200. That's considered return of principal. Okay. One last two things on this. Um, you will pay a sales charge when you buy into this crap. Um, there's a thing called an equity indexed annuity. An equity indexed annuity is a fixed annuity, but what they do is it tracks an index. So your payment every month will be, they'll set a floor of like say 2% and a max of 10 and a participation rate, which means that your return will be a percentage of what the index does. 
So if you have a nine percent percent, if you have a nine percent participation rate, and a um, and a two percent floor and a ten percent max, you'll never do less than two. You'll never do more than ten. But say the index does nine, you'll do ninety percent of that, which is I guess what is that eight point one. So your your return will be ninety percent of what the index is tracking does. Since it has a floor and you can't lose money, it's not a security. Okay. Since it has a floor, it's not a security. It's a fixed annuity. Um, I think that's it on annuities. I'm gonna I'm gonna be done in about a minute and get off and subscribe and share, subscribe and like, please. Okay. Um, as far as retirements go. And I may have to come back to this because I'm sure I'll remember something at the last second. Um, <clears throat> as Tatar's retirement goes, qualified means that you put money in pre-tax and it grows tax deferred. Non-qualified means you put money in after tax and it grows tax deferred. Retirement accounts grow tax deferred. Except for the Roth, which grows tax-free as long as you held it for five years. I think this is a really good primer on the Series 6. If I get good feedback, I'll do more. But I'm just trying to see how this works. Y'all have a good night. Please subscribe and share. And I hope I helped. And wake up, guys. Wake up. It's time to wake up. Okay. Bye-bye.